Open your Bible, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21 this morning. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, help us to look carefully at your word. And as we read your word, let it uh, shape how we walk, that we might attend carefully to our walk. That we would not walk as unwise, but as wise. Use your spirit to apply your word to our hearts. Amen. Several years ago, uh, Kelsey and I were on our way back down from quite a steep hike on a hot, sunny day. We were exhausted, uh, and on the way down, we stopped to chat in the shade with two older couples who were on their way up. Uh, These four were British, and apparently they had been meeting up to go walking on holiday for many decades. We were understandably perplexed. This was a serious, intense hike with lots of altitude gain. Uh, Certainly not a walk in our minds. But in the course of our conversation, we discovered that in the United Kingdom, uh, they call everything from hiking to even overnight backpacking walking. And what we call hiking would be like a multi-week expedition. Well, I think Paul in the text before us and and what he's been developing over Ephesians 4 and 5 is a walk in this British sense. Not a simple walk around the block, but a long endeavor. It's a lifelong journey. In 4.1, Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In 4.17, he warns us not to walk as unbelievers do. In 5.2, we're called to walk in love, imitating Christ's own love for us. And then in 5.7, we are commanded to walk as children of the light. And now in 5.15, Paul tells us to look carefully how we walk. If this is going to be a worthy, distinct, loving walk that brings life to the world, we must attend carefully to how we walk. The life Paul is calling us to doesn't happen by chance. It must be cultivated. It requires careful attention. And so Paul spells out in these verses how to walk carefully with three contrasts. If you've been with us the last several weeks, this rhythm should be familiar to you. First, he says, we are not to walk as unwise, but as wise. Second, we are not to be foolish, but to understand the Lord's will. And third, we are not to get drunk with wine, but instead to be filled with the Spirit. 
These three contrasts illustrate what a careful walk looks like. But this morning I'm going to cheat a bit and reflect on this passage under two headings, uh, rather than three. Two headings, walk wisely and walk filled with the Spirit. To begin with, walk wisely. Walk wisely. Paul begins straightforwardly in verse 15. Look carefully how then you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Christian wisdom uh, is not abstract, but it is fundamentally practical. It's a way of walking. It's a way of living. In fact, in Scripture, uh, wisdom is regularly closely connected with the image of walking. For example, Craig Bartholomew and Ryan O'Dowd, summarizing the teaching of Proverbs on wisdom, say that wisdom is about the paths, notice the walking metaphor, that lead to life, shalom, or peace, and flourishing whether among humans, creation, cities, farms, families, schools, governments, or whatever else we can imagine. They continue offering a rough outline of what wisdom means in the Old Testament and in the Bible. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is concerned with discerning the order that the Lord has built into the creation. Wisdom focuses on discerning God's ways in particular circumstances and wisdom is grounded in tradition. Drawing on this biblical wisdom tradition and this, the, these ideas of, of wisdom, Paul brings forward two aspects of practical wisdom in verses 16 and 17. First, we walk wisely by redeeming the time. We walk wisely by redeeming the time. Verse 16, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Lately, I've been uh, reflecting on the life of Jonathan Edwards. I think you'll see why in a moment. After pas pastoring in Northampton um, for uh, about 25 years, in 1750, he transitioned to working as a missionary amongst uh, Indians at Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And then in 1758, at the age of 55, Jonathan Edwards was made the president of the College of New Jersey, what today we know of as Princeton University. Now, I've been reflecting on Edwards' life recently uh, because uh, when J Edwards moved to New, New Jersey, there was a serious smallpox outbreak going around. And just as in our day with our pandemic, there was controversy in his day among, amongst Christians as to whether you should get inoculated against smallpox or not. Well, Edwards had a lifelong interest in science. One of his first papers was actually a study of, of spiders and how they weave webs uh, and he was very scientifically minded. Uh, and so uh, Edwards signed his family up for inoculations. His whole family got inoculated with smallpox. Uh, his family uh, and him initially recovered from it. It protected all of his family from getting smallpox. Uh, and yet Edwards himself actually ended up contracting smallpox in his mouth and throat and died shortly later at the age of 55, shortly after moving to Princeton. Now, my point is neither that Edwards was wise or foolish for getting inoculated. This is not an object lesson about vaccinations. Rather, although Edwards died fairly young at the age of 55, Edwards is often regarded as the greatest American thinker uh, in history. And the Yale edition of his collected works are about 16,000 pages long. Okay? So how does someone accomplish that much in that short of a life. 
Well, from an early age, Edwards recognized that we walk wisely by redeeming the time. And so at age 19, he wrote in his diary, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can. And in fact, Edwards would come back from horse, uh, you know, riding his horse on errands and stuff with uh, sheets of paper stuffed in his pockets and clipped all over his clothes because as he was even riding his horse, he would be uh, reading scripture and meditating on the passage he was going to preach and taking little notes. And, uh, so he's a bit of an eccentric guy, but certainly he understood this lesson that we must redeem our time. Paul's language here of redeeming means buying it all up. Buy the time out of stock. We can't stretch time. You can't make more time. But we can use it to its fullest. And so Paul calls us to walk wisely by making the most of every opportunity available to us. And we do so by recognizing that our time, the time of our life that we have been given, the period we live in, is, presents distinct challenges and opportunities distinct from other times. The challenges of our day are different than the challenges of Edward's day. And the opportunities of our day are different than the opportunities of Edward's day. And so to walk wisely redeeming the time, we have to pay attention to the period in which God has placed us. Paul says, redeem the time because the days are evil. It's a reminder that all of history since Christ's ascension takes place in a time of overlap. It's like a confluence of two rivers coming together. In 2, 6, Ephesians 2.6, you may recall, Paul said, in one sense, we are already seated with Christ in heaven. In one sense, everything is already taken care of. We're already seated with Christ in heaven. And yet, in the next chapter that we're going to look at, Paul looks forward to a climactic defeat of the forces of evil when Christ will finally be throned over all the powers and principalities. So we also look forward to Christ's final definitive victory. We live in this time of overlap. And so we must make the most of every opportunity. We must redeem the time. One of my professors at Regent, his father was a Presbyterian minister at Lookout Mountain, Georgia, for many years. Uh, and apparently one of his father's uh, uh, famous illustrations was that life is like the barrel of a rifle. Compared to the full course of a bullet, a bullet can travel a mile, the barrel of a rifle is not very long, but it determines the tra trajectory of that bullet, the whole course. And our lives are like that. Compared to eternity, your life is not very long, but it determines your entire course for all of eternity, which way you will head. Second, walking wisely, we walk wisely by understanding the Lord's will. Verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here we can get a little hung up if we think Paul is primarily talking about the Lord's will for our individual particular decisions. You know, should I buy this car or that car? Should I move here or there? Should I get married or not? Those kinds of things. Certainly, the Lord's will does apply to those, but John Stott suggests we can get on better if we distinguish between God's general will and his particular will. We should seek to understand the Lord's will as we make particular decisions, and we do this by thinking carefully through the decision, 
by praying, by asking advice of mature Christians, and applying what we know of God's general will from Scripture to that situation. But here in verse 17, given what Paul has said so far in the book of Ephesians, I think what he's saying is that we walk wisely by understanding the Lord's general will. His big plan for all of creation. And then understanding how our time fits into that. If you remember back to the beginning of this series last fall, in Ephesians 1, 8 through 10, Paul wrote that God's grace has been lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. That's what Ephesians is all about, the mystery of God's will. According to God's purpose, this mystery is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him. And then a little bit in the next verse, uh, Paul says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then he closes Ephesians chapter 1 by praying that his readers might be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they might know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's what Paul's uh, uh, calling back to mind here in chapter 5. He's saying we walk wisely when we uh, seek the will of the Lord, when we keep this big picture in mind. This big picture that starts all the way back at creation. The center of this plan is in the cross and Christ's work, and it continues all the way to the end of time. We keep this plan before us, and then we can walk wisely. We can understand the Lord's will and walk accordingly. Okay, so we walk wisely. That's the first basic principle Paul calls us to on this careful walk. But then he gives us a second principle for walking carefully. A second principle. Walk filled by the, the Spirit. Walk filled by the Spirit. But Paul doesn't start with the Spirit in verse 18. He's telling us to walk filled by the Spirit, but he begins by saying, don't get drunk with wine. That's maybe a bit of a surprising spot to start. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Why does Paul go there first? Well, note first that Paul doesn't have a problem with wine per se. In fact, in 1 Timothy, he instructs Timothy to drink some wine because it will be good for his health. So his problem's not with wine per se, but getting drunk with wine, consuming too much wine. We see then that the behavior Paul is targeting, and the reason he turns here is because it's the very opposite of redeeming the time. By definition, you can't make the most of every opportunity if you're drunk. Paul's language actually seems to be quoting the Greek translation of Proverbs 23, where we read, Who has woe? Who has trouble? Who has strife? Who has vexations and squabbles? Who has wounds without reason? Who has bloodshot eyes? Are they not those who linger long over wine, who frequent places where drinking takes place? Do not get drunk from wine. Rather, converse with righteous people and converse in public places. This, uh, the Greek translation of Proverbs 23 that Paul's quoting here it points to a superficial similarity between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. Okay, notice notice in Proverbs 23, it's saying, uh, who are these people who linger long over wine and they frequent places where drinking takes place? 
there is a sort of social community around those who are getting drunk. And yet, on the other hand, Proverbs says, no, instead, converse with righteous people. Seek this other sort of community. And so we see both drunkenness and being filled by the Holy Spirit take place in social gatherings, the drinking party or conversing with righteous people. And in both cases, we are under the influence of something that influences our behavior, that affects our behavior. But the similarities between being drunk with wine and being filled by the Holy Spirit are only superficial. Paul goes on to say, uh, being drunk is actually like debauchery or, or reckless living. It's casting off all restraint. And this is the heart of the problem with getting drunk or similar activities like using marijuana and drugs. Just as Paul defined coveting another person in the previous section as idolatry, so here he defines being drunk as debauchery or recklessness, uh, reckless living. It's casting off all constraint. And so if self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, then casting off self-control and drunkenness is fundamentally incompatible with a life lived governed by the Spirit. They can't go together. And the statistics bear out Paul's point. Getting drunk with wine leads to reckless living. Alcohol abuse uh, is a contributing factor to it's like 40% of fatal car crashes in the U.S., two-thirds of cases of domestic violence, similarly high numbers of sexual assaults, physical attacks, and murders. Okay? Being drunk with wine leads people to casting off restraint and to living recklessly, and it ends up wrecking lives. In contrast, then, Paul says there's a different kind of joy to be had apart from being drunk with wine. And so he tells us, be filled with the Spirit. Walk filled by the Spirit. Grammatically, this command, be filled with the Spirit, is the head that the rest of our passage depends on. If you look down the rest of these verses, uh, there's one command, be filled with the Spirit, and five participles that spell out what this looks like. Kids, you might remember, participles are those I-N-G words. Addressing one another, singing, making music, giving thanks, and submitting. They're all spelling out what it looks like to live a life or walk filled by the Spirit. Paul's command to be filled by the Spirit is plural. It's a command that's carried out corporately or in community, not simply in private. We have to do it together. It's a present command. It's not saying it's something that happens once for all in the past, but it's an ongoing part of our lives that we are continually filled by the Holy Spirit. And finally, we're getting some good alliterations this morning. It's not only plural, present, but it's also a passive verb. That is to say, Paul doesn't tell us to fill ourselves, but rather let yourself be filled. Someone else is doing the filling. Now, to be filled with the Spirit is a bit ambiguous in English and in Greek. It could mean that the Spirit is what we're filled up with. We're full of the Spirit. Or it could mean the Spirit is what fills us. He's the agent doing the filling. In the context of Ephesians, I've, I'm, I'm convinced that this latter understanding is the right one. That the Spirit is at work filling us with Christ, who 123 says, fills all in all. And with God, who 222 says, dwells in the church by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit fills us with Christ and with God. So Paul says, instead of drunkenness, 
let the Spirit fill you with true life and true joy. Let the Spirit make you into imitators of God as he makes you more Christ-like. Then Paul turns to worship. Because worship is the result of a Spirit-filled life. Or rather, it is a Spirit-filled life. Worship. True joy not found in drunken revelry, but in worship. Paul describes six characteristics of Spirit-filled worship. Sorry, I know it's a complex outline this morning. Uh, Maybe it's because I was thinking about Jonathan Edwards. In one of his sermons, I kid you not, I read the word 43rdly. So be thankful that it's only six aspects, uh, not 43. First, spirit-filled worship is directed to the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 19, and to God the Father. True, life-giving worship must be directed to the true God who made heaven and earth. We don't typically talk about wise worship, but perhaps we should. That's precisely what Paul's commending to us, wise worship. If God made heaven and earth in wisdom, then worshiping God, orienting ourselves towards God, giving him praise and honor, is discerning the true order and structure of creation. Worship, spirit-filled worship is directed toward God, and so it is wise worship. Second, spirit-filled worship is corporate. Paul uses this plural command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But then he goes on to say that this means speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's, of course, a vertical dimension to worship. When we sing our praises, they are directed towards God. But there's also a horizontal dimension at the same time. By our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we instruct and encourage and exhort one another. So there's actually something very fitting about the last couple months that we go outside and face each other as we sing. We're teaching each other. Especially in Paul's day, when many members of the church would have been illiterate, psalms, hymns, and spirituals were a way to memorize the Christian faith, to learn the truths of Scripture. And in our own day, The best way to keep weeds out of our mind is to plant our mind full of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Third, spirit-filled worship is spiritual. Paul not only tells us to address each other with our singing, but also that we should sing and make music to the Lord with our hearts. We address one another, and yet our singing cannot simply be external. We have to put our hearts into it. What's going on inside has to match what's happening outside. Our worship must be spiritual. Fourth, spirit-filled worship is continual. Paul says we are to give thanks always and for everything. Certainly, if worship happens in community, then it makes sense that our Sunday morning gatherings, singing corporately, is part of that. And that's why for the last three months we've been going outside to sing at the end of every service. You can't simply give up worship as part of our corporate life together. But Paul would also scold us. He would scold us if we thought that Sunday morning exhausts this command. Paul doesn't say sing together once a week. He says continually give thanks in everything. As the Spirit fills us, we're to give thanks always and for everything. And this should take place every time Christians come together. Why we give thanks before meals, in homes, at work, at school, 
in fellowship groups, in coffee shops. In fact, restrictions on Sunday singing shouldn't mean less worship overall. It should mean more worship as we find creative ways to worship God individually and in in community. Fifth, spirit-filled worship requires submission. When we are filled by the Spirit, verse 21 says, it looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Filled by the Spirit, we submit in appropriate ways to each other. And as we'll see over the next uh, several sections of Ephesians, Paul shows what this looks like in marriage, in the family, in the workplace. But it also applies to our corporate worship. I think our elders have provided a marvelous uh, illustration of what this looks like over the last year. In the last year, the council has had to make all sorts of difficult decisions. Do we stay online? Do we meet in person? Do we stay worshiping outside? Do we go indoors? Uh, Do we ask people to wear masks or don't ask them to wear masks? Do we sing inside? Do we sing outside? All kinds of decisions. And on nearly every decision, there have been elders who voted on both sides of the question. And that is as it should be. These are not simple questions. And there are good biblical reasons for voting either way on many of these things. But what I admire about our elders so much is that at no point has an elder showed up on Sunday and said, well, I voted this way, and so I'm going to do what I think is right, even if the council vote went a different way. No, as one of our elders, uh, Vic Keel, put it, as soon as the vote is over, the council's decision is my decision, however I voted. And so our elders have modeled for us what it looks like to submit to each other and to the proper authority of the council in corporate worship. Finally, spirit-filled worship is Trinitarian. Spirit-filled worship is Trinitarian. That is to say, true worship is shaped by the doctrine of the Trinity. It is given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in fact, in some mysterious sense, we are brought into the eternal dance of the Trinity when we worship. Kids, you remember at the end of that movie, Tangled, when they go to the city and they have the folk dances where everybody's holding hands and they're weaving in and out in the dance? Does anyone remember that part? It's my favorite part of that movie anyways. Uh, uh, The Trinity's a bit like that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other eternally. And in worship, we are invited into this folk dance of the Trinity. We truly worship as we come to worship in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we say, Jesus is my King and Lord. He will now rule over my life. That's what Paul says here. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we truly worship by giving thanks to everything for God the Father. And this happens as we are filled by the Spirit. Or to put it more simply, we approach, in worship, we approach God the Father in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. In our worship, we are being brought into share in God's own love. This takes place, uh, this submission and this worship in verse 21, Paul says, takes place out of reverence for Christ. Or more literally, out of fear of Christ. Remember, we, we began this morning by talking about walking wisely. And that is where we end. Proverbs teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning or the foundation of wisdom. 
And now Paul ends there. He says our walk is founded on our reverence or fear of Christ. For Christ is the Lord who made heaven and earth in wisdom. So we walk wisely, filled by the Spirit when we worship. To worship God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to recognize the true structure of reality. As, uh, but we don't simply recognize this structure as an intellectual fact. No, in worship we are drawn into communion, into a dance with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Participating in this triune life of God is open to you, friends. If you've never worshipped like this before, maybe you've been worshipping other things besides the true God, but you long to be drawn into the triune life of God, this is open to you. It begins by acknowledging Jesus as Lord, saying, Jesus, be king of my life and rule me, and by allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you, to remake you as beloved children of God so that you might imitate him. Perhaps you long ago said, Jesus is my Lord, but you're weary of these evil days. You feel exhausted and worn out. We'll come then and be refreshed as even this morning we engage together in directed, corporate, spiritual, continual, submitted, Trinitarian worship. Let the Spirit fill you with the life of God and be restored. Or perhaps you become complacent. You haven't been making the most of every opportunity. You've neglected the Lord's will. Perhaps you've even been wasting your time in drunkenness. Then hear this challenge. Let your life be filled again by the Spirit. Hear the challenge once again to walk carefully, to walk wisely, to walk filled by the Spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, we have talked about this truth that we can participate in the love and fullness of life that there is in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet this cannot simply be an intellectual endeavor. We can, have, we can be told that honey is sweet, and yet that pales in comparison to actually tasting honey. In the same way, we hear what it's like to be to experience your love, and yet we want to taste it for ourselves this morning. As we head out in a moment to sing worship together, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, this very morning, let us taste your goodness, your love, your fullness of life. Let us this very morning be filled by the Spirit. Let Christ dwell within us and fill us. Amen. Amen.